named Adoniram, born to a pastor and his wife who lived in Plymouth, Massachusetts. He was uh, a faithful pastor of a small church. She was, his mother was a praying woman. Adoniram grew up really in early America. He was a very smart child. In fact, when he was age three, uh, his mother decided to surprise her husband and taught him to read within one week. So Adoniram was reading by age three. He learned in his elementary years Latin, Greek, mathematics, astronomy, logic. Every night his parents would gather around a table and his dad would read scripture and pray for each one of the children. He faced the difficulty of ministry. Adonai grew up in a ministry home and he um, saw people come into his home that didn't like his father very much. Some people gossiped about them. He experienced the pain of a church split because of all that. His little sister passed away at one point that happened in their family. And so there's a lot of difficulties that happened in his life. Yet, even through all that, his father prayed for Adoniram and actually prayed that God would send him into the preaching ministry, the ministry of the word. His father, age 16, sent him off to a Christian university called Brown University, which used to be Christian a long time ago. It's not anymore. And went there, brought him there instead of Yale, which used to be Christian too, because he thought Brown University is more Christian than Yale was at the time. And so he thought he would be uh, not veered away from the faith. And so he went there, and yes, he had some good Christian professors, but he also met a friend named Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was a deist, basically like an agnostic, but you believe there's a God. He started being introduced to free thinkers like Thomas Paine, Voltaire, Benjamin Franklin. And during those three years, he skipped his freshman year. He was so smart. During those three years, he began to walk away from the faith his parents taught him. After graduating as a valedictorian, his parents greeted him and celebrated with him. And he sat them down. And he told them, no longer am I a Christian. I am a deist. I do not believe that the Bible is true. His mom cried for an entire week and begged him to turn back to Christ. His dad sat down every night and tried to go through logic with him, apologetics with him, but he was unconvinced. He moved to New York City to become a playwright. He hung out with wicked friends. He partied. He lived a wicked life. This is a true story of a man named Adoniram. He walked away from the faith of his parents. And so the question that I'm asking here this morning is why? Why, why do children of Christian parents walk away from the faith? Two weeks ago, we started in Daniel chapter 5, and you might have noticed that we missed a pretty major section of Scripture, verses 17 through 23. And that section records Daniel's sermon to King Belshazzar. And as I considered this text that I thought we should probably go back to and consider, I prayed about it. And actually, I realized that this text of scripture answers a big question in the church. There's many books have been written about this, articles, people have opinions on it. But I think this text of scripture answers why do children of Christian parents walk away from the faith? This is a very delicate subject. This is a very sensitive question because we're talking about real people. We're talking about some of your children who have walked away from the faith. We're talking about friends People we've ministered to, people we could name that we know that 
we spent time with, hours in ministry. I mean, I could list, you know, 20, 30 people that I've spent a lot of time with in their youth, and they walked away, and they're living a life now of immorality, some hedonism, some atheist, some apathetic. Lifeway Research did a study, and they found that two-thirds of American young people who attend a Protestant church regularly as a teenager, so two-thirds of the teenagers, okay, in our church here, two-thirds of them walk away from the church after high school. That means 10, out of 10 teenagers, three or four of them will remain attending church. And if you've been in any type of ministry and you've worked with youth in any, and really any church, you'll see that this statistic is very accurate. And so the question is, why? Why does that happen? Well, people have reasons, and so they have their reasons up here, you know. 34% say it's this reason. The teens have their reasons. The church has their reasons. All these books out there has their reasons, have their reasons. The question is, what does God say about it? Like, what's God's answer to this? And I think this text gives us a very clear answer, Daniel chapter 5. 22 years earlier to the events of this chapter, the great and powerful King Nebuchadnezzar passed away. He was around the age 80, a little over 80. Under his leadership, he built a magnificent city. Remember, the city of Babylon was almost impenetrable. I mean, they thought it was. The current king of Babylon was King Nabonidus. His co-regent was King Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was this young punk king that was supposed to take care of the city of Babylon, defend her. He didn't do a very good job with that. Instead, he decided to throw a, a drunken party. And on October 12th, 539 BC, the Persians surrounded the city and infiltrated the city and conquered the city. And, and they did it by, by diverting the Euphrates River away from the city and going under the walls into the city and defeating the city. And actually, it's interesting because you think about it. The Babylonians should have been able to defend even that. I mean, if people are sneaking under a wall, what do you do? You just keep chopping their heads off as they come through. But they were so, so secure in their own ideas of what they thought could protect them. They were so prideful and overconfident that it led to their fall. And the city had a drunken party led by the king. And we see that in Daniel chapter 5. In fact, if you look in verse 1, it says there's a, a thousand nobility there. And if you think about it, if you add women and servants and guards and lower level officials, easily there could have been two to 3,000 people at this banquet hall. There was wine, women, the worship of idols. This was a big party. This was really what... 1 Peter 4 describes as the Gentiles walking in their own passions, right? This is our world. This is our world. This is, this is the college frat house. Like what was happening in that room was a big example of what happens in these small frat houses or sometimes teens have parties that they'll throw or this is what was happening in that room is glorified on rated R movies, some even PG-13. It's actually getting even lower than that, some even PG movies now. Many online videos or romantic novels look at what took place in that palace, right? And they actually glorify that in their media. And to top it all off, King Belshazzar sacrilegiously desecrated the Jewish vessels from the temple. 
But here's the thing. King Belshazzar knew better. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And so God supernaturally communicated to him through a divine message on a wall. Look at verse 1. We're going to read through this text again. Not every verse, but we're going to read through most of them. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, and it was probably his grandfather, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the, the golden vessels that they vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote And the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords were perplexed. At the height of this party, the music was playing. People were dancing. Bodies were embraced. People laughed. Men laughed. They swore. Then a hand appeared on the wall And everything stopped. Think of the shock of that moment as a divine hand is writing in this grand hall. The music stops. All the sinful activity stops. A hall of a thousand to maybe two thousand people direct their attention to a wall. The king is in his royal position. He's shaking and he screams, bring the wise men. He's freaking out. Someone run, runs and tells the queen mother that his, her grandson, her son, is freaking out here. In fact, we see that in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came in the banquet hall. And the queen declared, remember this queen was either the granddaughter or the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. She says, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, that's your grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, she's making this emphasis like, you know this guy, you know this guy. King Nebuchadnezzar, he made him chief of the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. The queen mother, she knew where to turn during this tragedy 
she instructed him to call Daniel. Daniel's now in his 80s at this time. And notice in verse 11 what she believes about Daniel. She said that he had a spirit of the holy gods within him. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that phrase before? You should have remembered that from Daniel chapter number four. In fact, go back to Daniel four and look at that. Where did she get this idea of Daniel and his character? Well, she remembered how God used Daniel. She probably heard the stories. She might even have witnessed some of the events. Most importantly, her grandfather would have passed that on to her. Look at verse, or her father, whichever one it is. Look at verse nine of chapter four. This is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking to Daniel. Oh, Belteshazzar, so that's Daniel's Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Look down in verse 18 and look at the last line of verse 18. But you are able, speaking to Daniel, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So the queen mother, she knew of the most high God and she knew of Daniel who worshiped the most high God. She remembered the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and and likely heard it directly from her grandfather or from her father, from King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, chapter 4 is the testimony of how King Nebuchadnezzar turned from pride and in humility turned to faith in the one true high God, most high. And remember chapter 4, that was a letter that was sent out to all these districts. So it wasn't just the queen mother. It wasn't, it's everybody in Babylon. They knew about King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, there was a letter sent out to every district, all languages and all peoples. So they knew about this high God. The fame of Daniel and his God was well known in Babylon, well known to this king, King Belshazzar. But yet the position of authority of Daniel was not there anymore. And the question is why? Why was he no longer the chief of the wise men? Well, we don't have a direct answer from the scripture. But for some reason, we see here that Daniel was put into retirement. We can speculate. Maybe, maybe, well, let's say this first. It wasn't because they didn't know who Daniel was, right? It wasn't because Daniel was too old to function because in the next kingdom, he's actually going to be in charge of a province. So, What's the reason? I think probably we can conclude that either they viewed Daniel as unnecessary or maybe Daniel stood in the way of the worship of their gods or of the way that they wanted to live in their sinful ways. But either way, Daniel was removed. But King Belshazzar, he knew who this guy was. In fact, look in verse 13. You can see it. He he acknowledges he knows who this guy is. In verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel. Like, That one, we know about you, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. And I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So where did he hear that from? Well, of course, the queen mother just said it. But actually think about the timeline here of of King Belshazzar. I call him King Bel up there for short. It's just too long to, you know, write it all out. King Neb. In fact, in my notes, if you looked at my notes, that's how it's in here too. So it's just easier than writing all that out. But think of the timeline of this. God crashed King Belshazzar's party in 539. His grandfather died 22 years before that. King Belshazzar was probably about 30 
five, his mid-30s at this point when he had this party and he ended up dying. And so King Belshazzar would have been about 13 years old when King Nebuchadnezzar died, which means that he knew that king. He knew his grandfather. He would have heard the stories maybe even directly from his grandfather. He would have heard stories like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar seeing these three men and then someone, God himself maybe, in there with them. Daniel was 80 years old or in his 80s at this Babylonian party. Back at his, when, uh, when King Belshazzar was born, Daniel would have been about 45 years old. So I'm 43. Is that right? 43. Just make sure my wife. I'm 43, so a little bit older than me. But think about that. So he would have had a number of years where he would have known Daniel as well. So Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar weren't some far-off ancient history to Belshazzar. This king knew them. He knew the truth about the Most High God. In fact, we'll see that in verse 22 in a a moment. But let me pause here to remind us that this is an important responsibility that we have to the next generation. That is to teach them the truth. It is the job of the church to teach truth to the next generation. It's the job of the church. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, that's you, that's me, we are to build the faith of believers. I want you to notice it doesn't say that it's the seminary that's the foundation of truth. It's not nonprofits or some curriculum Nonprofit, that's the foundation of truth. It's not colleges, universities. It's not even, it's not even, they didn't even say the family in there. That's interesting, isn't it? It's the church. The church is the one to hold fast to doctrine, to proclaim the truth of God's word. And definitely families should teach their kids and disciple them. But it's our job as a church, it's you and me, it's our job to disciple children, to disciple this next generation. The Bible says, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, to the apostles who built the church, right? Christ built the church, but through the apostles. So the church is responsible to make disciples. We're responsible to baptize. We're responsible to teach them all things Christ commanded. That is our responsibility. And as And as a pastor, I'm to lead in this. I'm to lead in this. I I must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that I may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. That's the truth. And be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So it's so important for us as a church to remember that it is our job to disciple people. It's our job to reach this next generation. That's why church, I think, is so important. It's so important that we do these children's classes we do on Sunday mornings. Now, we don't have them after the service today, but we'll have it next week. It's so important for us to have a healthy, discipleship-focused youth ministry. What we're doing in a couple weeks, three weeks from now, we're going to have a kids' spectacular on a Sunday night. Through Wednesday, we're going to have kids in here. What we're doing is so important. It's not an entertainment time. It's going to be a lot of fun, I'll admit that. But we're not gonna have, it's not entertainment. It's not about babysitting children. Children's ministry, youth ministry, it should not be about that. It's about giving the gospel to children. And I think about the children, and really 
our families in our, in our valley here, in Simi Valley. Do we want to reach our city for Christ? But do we want to see the, the boys and girls and teenagers and parents? We want to see adults. We want to see people come to Christ. Really, can I tell you the best place to start is with the next generation? And that's why I believe so much in what we're doing here in a couple of weeks when we do Kids Spectacular, because we're going to give the truth to kids. We're going to call them to faith in Christ. And so as a church, it's our responsibility to do that kind of stuff. That's why I hope you will sign up. I looked at the sign up back there. There's only a couple people signed up for that. Will you volunteer for that? Honestly, every one of us in here should say, wow, we should be discipling the next generation. We should give the gospel to the next generation. How can I participate? We have these cards in the back. In fact, I have one right down here. We have these cards in the back that are invitations. We're going to have more next week. Like, you should go through your neighborhood. You should find every kid in your neighborhood and give them one and invite them. We're going to have times of canvassing. You can see that in the, in the bulletin. We're going to go out as a church. We're going to go to neighborhoods, go to parks. We're going to try to invite children to come to these types of this, this event. The reality is the average child in America, they don't, they've never heard of Adam and Eve. They never heard of Moses. Many of them have only heard of Jesus as a curse word. I spoke at this camp uh, last week, not this past week, but the week before. And uh, it was a good week, two, hour, uh, two times a day. I spoke to children for 45 minutes, preached to them. So it was very tiring, but it was very fruitful. But what's interesting is most of those kids coming, maybe half of them are not churched. And when I'm speaking about certain individuals, they've never heard of these individuals in the scripture. In fact, even when I read through Daniel and tell stories like this, there's some people that come to me even in our church and say, I don't know that story. I've never heard that story before. Why is that? Why is it that children in America and even in our own church, we don't know these stories of Daniel? Isn't, these are the best stories ever, aren't they? I mean, should we know these? Well, there was a time when children actually learned stories in the Bible in Sunday classes. And so my point is, is that the problem, one of the problems we do have is that we are not teaching the truth to our children anymore. We're not teaching them the foundational truth of the scriptures and the stories. Our philosophy of youth ministry at our church, our philosophy of youth ministry is that for the preschool and the elementary age, we go through the Bible every two years. So if your children are in that program, by the time they get to sixth grade, they will have gone through the program over and or they'll go through the Bible over and over every two years. So hopefully by that time, they know these kind of stories. They know them by heart. We have true trackers, which teaches kids doctrine. We teach the kids to memorize God's word. And again, I don't view those times as times of just let's have something fun for children. These are times to give children foundational truth. We're laying a foundation of truth for the next generation. It's the job of the church to teach truth. It's a job of the parents to take that truth and then disciple your children to go home and, and nur- bring them up in the nurture and training of the Lord. So why do children of parents walk away from the faith? Well, one reason is, and it's not a reason we find in this text here today, but one reason I think is the church isn't doing its job. People aren't passing on truth to the next generation. We are passing on truth. And there are many churches that they're, the purpose of the church purpose of the youth ministry is to entertain people, to entertain the kids, to have a great fun time, to, to have a really cool, you know, young hip guy. Not me. I'm not that. I always tell teens and, and youth, I'm like, I'm not cool and I'm okay with it. 
But sometimes it's like this guy is super cool and let's have a super cool time and it's all about entertainment. It's about attractional ministry. And we don't teach the truth. I had a counselor come to me this past, well, a week and a half ago. And at the end of the week, he said, he said, when we started out the week, so we had 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds there that week, maybe some 13-year-olds. He said, when we started the week, I thought, is it even worth it to, like, preach the gospel to, to children? I mean, can they even understand this? Is this going to be just like a whatever week or whatever? And here's a guy who, you know, grew up in a church and all that. And so and he said, but then as I heard you get up and, you know, twice a day, 45 minutes, like, actually go through, we went from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, and we taught through the gospel. He said, I realized, actually, these kids can understand their sin. They can understand their need for a Savior. And actually, this is what these kids need. And he came to this realization that what he thought was maybe worthless or fruitless, he's like, actually, this is the most important thing for them. And as I kind of thought about that, I thought, so here's a guy who grew up in a church. He's now in college at a Christian university. And this never got passed on to him, the importance of teaching youth. Like, what is his church? What did his church miss growing up when he was growing up? Someone didn't pass on the importance of proclaiming truth to children, to teens. So church, parents, we need to get on board with discipling our kids. Many, many parents reject kind of the idea of, okay, you know, that's, that's good for some people in the church, but not for ours. And I'm just going to, I would just plead with you parents. Even like, you know, sometimes parents will just take their kids out of the program and just go home or not put their kids in the program at all. And I would just plead with you to, to get on board with what we're doing here. I think the thing that I want you to know is that my heart actually is really sad when that happens because the purpose of what we're trying to do is to help disciple your kids. So when someone doesn't put their kids in a program, it actually makes me really sad because that's what we want to do. We want to teach kids truth. We want to pass on truth. But also there's times where parents neglect their own role, where they just say, well, just drop them off at church, and hopefully that's going to do something for them. And so sometimes parents reject the church. Sometimes they reject their own responsibilities. And so as parents, we need to get on board with, with discipling our kids and being involved in that. And the rest of us in the church, we really don't have any excuses. We should be involved with discipling this next generation as well. So why do children walk away from their parents' faith? We really haven't answered the question yet. Because the truth is, there are children who grew up in church, they memorize the scriptures, they sit under expositional preaching, they, and they still walk away. But Daniel preached a message to King Belshazzar, and he told him the reason. Look down in verse 16. Verse 17. I want you to imagine this room is silent as King Belshazzar, or as, King, or as Daniel walks in, and walks up to King Belshazzar. Imagine the deafening silence of this hall as they listen for the interpretation, and then Daniel preaches. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then, I don't know what he did at that moment, but I can imagine he turns to everybody there. And speaks directly to the king, but he preaches to this crowd of people. 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship 
and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. So there was an effect he, may, he had upon them. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. He was a dictator. King Nebuchadnezzar was. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel preached, really, Daniel chapter 4. God had given King Nebuchadnezzar an important position of influence. Really, he was the richest, most powerful man on the earth at that time. But yet he did not acknowledge God as the high God. He did not submit to God the one who created him, the one who had given everything to him. In fact, verse 20 really identifies his problem. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened, so he's rejecting God, so that he dealt proudly. What we find in verse 20 is King Nebuchadnezzar's problem, or was his problem, but also is our problem as well. You see, God created each one of you in here. God created you. He's given you what you have. He upholds everything in this world by the word of his power. So therefore you exist. You are able to breathe right now because he wills it. Therefore it is the duty. It is the delight. It should be the delight of every person to submit themselves in humility before God. And that means that you wholly you completely, absolutely, unceasingly depend upon God and God alone. God has given you breath. Why has God given you breath? So you'll praise him. God has given you a brain with one billion nerve cells. Think about that. And those one billion nerve cells make over 60 trillion connections. So your brain's firing, hopefully still right now. Some of you aren't anymore. But anyways, your brain's firing. And God enables those electrical charges to keep firing each moment. So you'll think about him. So you'll set your hope in him. So you'll pray to him. So you'll love him. So you'll trust him in those neurons, ner- you know, neurons or whatever. As the Bible says, with all your heart. <laughs> He's given you a heart so you'll honor him to bring him glory. And the problem we have is that we think and we speak and we live life in such a way as if we're God and we live life really for ourselves. Our culture, the American culture, is really submitting to, believing in the religion of self. I read an article this past, read an article this past week in The Guardian about a man named C.C. Telfer who was ruled ineligible for the U.S. Olympic trials. So he he claims to be a transgender woman. He tried out for the women's 400-meter hurdles in the Olympics. He won the NCAA women's 
um, title in this same event. And so he was trying out for the Olympics, and in the, in the day he didn't make it for some various reasons. But it was interesting because he wrote this blog post, and this was in a blog I read, and this is a quote from him. And I want you to notice how he describes his beliefs. And really notice the faith he has in himself. I love, this is what he says, I love what I'm doing and I'm getting to live my truth and live my authentic life. I believe that this is my way of being the change that I want to see in the world and I live by that every single day. Now that, my friends, right there is the creed, not literally the creed, but a creed that many people in America believe. Many of our young people are following that idea, those ideas right there, and it's a religion. It's a religion of self. Now, no one calls it a religion. I don't think there's any church out there that has religion of self on there or whatever, but that's what it is. And what he's saying right here, I mean, here's a guy who needs Christ, right? So we we should pray for him. We should give him the gospel. We should love him in that way. But my point is, what I want to point out to you is what he believes, which is, a, which is actually, you'll see these kind of words underlined up there. You'll see these people speaking about these in our society. You'll see them in a lot of books. You'll see them and you'll hear them in movies. And it's really a religion of self. They trust and live for themselves. Think about it this way. Where is the religious doctrine in a belief like this? Where do they find their truth? Well, what does he, what does he say? I live my truth. So where is truth found? It's found in myself. They have spirituality. Where do they find spirituality? Well, I live my authentic life. Authenticity, really who I am inside is where my spirituality is found. They find fulfillment fulfillment by evangelizing others with their ideas. I believe that it's that this is my way of being the change. So I, I'm evangelizing. There's redemption. There's there's actually even sanctification. There's a change that's taking place, and I'm trying to cause that in the society around us. If you don't believe like them, you're condemned. So there's judgment. They're committed to this faith. I mean, this isn't just like a, something they, oh, I think, no, they're committed to this. And that's what he says at the very end. I live by that every single day. That's a faith commitment right there. My point is, is that this is the religion of the world of our society. When most of the young people I see that walk away from the faith, in general, that's what they believe right there. It's a focus in faith on the self. I want to be self-fulfilled. I trust myself. We live for the self. We fulfill the desires of the self. But the thing is, this is not something new. This satanic trick has been perpetuated for years. Shakespeare, the father of American, or not American, but of British English, Shakespeare wrote this. To thine own self be true, right? You know that. And each of us, no matter how old or young, has this battle to love and submit to our own selfish desires. Think about the false gospels. Think about the false gospel of the health, wealth gospel. What's that gospel about? Well, you get Jesus for yourself. Think about the legalist. He thinks he has these self-made rules, these traditions. If you, if you dress like this, if you do this, then God likes you more. And it's all about what he does. It's all about himself. So really all false gospels even fall under this religion of self. And none of us can really escape this because each person is born into this world with a sinful nature that is enslaved to the self. 
And so I want you to think about that because every argument you have with someone, every fight that you have, every evil desire, every lustful look you have really comes back to this idea that you want to fulfill the lust of your own heart, the lust of self. In fact, that's what James says. James says, what's causing these quarrels? What's causing fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The problem is found within you. Within you is not the solution. Within you is the problem. So teenager, you having a fight with your mom? Why are you having that fight with your mom? Oh, mom's so unreasonable. She's out of touch. <laughs> no, it's actually because you have passions at war within you. Husband, you have a grudge against your wife? Oh, you know. Why? Well, because she's wrong. <laughs> no, it's because you have passions at war within you. Church member, you have contention with someone else in the congregation. Why? Because you have sinful passions within you. It's pride. Every war, every fight, every church split has as its source this prideful, self-centered root. So why do we have such a, a love for ourselves? Well, the Bible says we're born into this world with this sin nature. And the only thing that can break the sin nature is regeneration. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's regeneration. That's God resurrecting your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you a new nature by his grace. The only thing that can crush this religion of self and of sin in your heart is the grace of God that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. James taught that the self is the source of your problems, not the solution. And God's grace is the answer to your problems. He gives more grace. What does a person need that's submitting to their heart of self? They need grace. And how does a person receive grace? Through humility. So look down in verse 20. The Bible says of King, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar that his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne, his glory taken from him. If you remember the story, it took seven years under really the, the judgment of God upon King Nebuchadnezzar for him to lift his eyes to heaven and say in his mind that God is God and he needs God. Pride really is a love and faith in the self and King Nebuchadnezzar came to a place of humility. Humility is coming to a place of helplessness. It's coming to a place of helplessness and a complete dependence on God. And it's, it's admitting that you, you are sinning. You're a sinner against God. Humility before God admits sin. It listens to God's truth. It submits to the word of God. It finds spiritual satisfaction in the word of God, in prayer, in singing, in fellowship with the church. Humility before God abides in Jesus Christ. It's, it, it delights to be under the control of the Holy Spirit and seeks to walk step by step, day by day, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of that, the Bible calls grace. Grace is God's work in you and through you. So we look in verse 21. King Nebuchadnezzar received grace from God. He was driven from among the children of men. End of verse 21. He submitted 
to God. He humbled himself before God. And then look at verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And then look at that last line there. Though you knew all this. Here we find one of the most sobering verses in all the scripture and the answer to our question. Why do children of Christian parents walk away from the faith? Well, Daniel condemned King Belshazzar as one who had truth revealed but rejected the truth. And he says in verse 22, Though you knew all this, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all this, though you knew about the Most High God, though you heard about how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, how God blessed him when he responded in humility, you knew what sin was, King Belshazzar. You knew the just judgment of God. You knew you reap what you sow. You knew the promise of destruction for pride. You knew the promise of blessing for humility. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself under the almighty hand of God, though you knew all this. And so why do children of Christian parents walk away from the faith? Because they have not humbled their heart, though they knew the truth. Honestly, I think you can read through all the books out there that try to answer this question. And this past week, I came to the realization that this is the heart of it all right here. Usually you read these books or hear these opinions of why second and third generation Christians walk away. Usually you hear stories about Cain and Hophni and Phinehas and Absalom. And, and there, there are many, actually I was reading last night, there are many legalistic reasons why people give. You know, some of it, some people say, that, well, the parents didn't have the right rules. It's like, what? Some people say, well, they shift the blame, and they say, well, maybe the parents should have given more rules. Sometimes that maybe there's some problems on both ends with that. I've heard parents that have grown children say, well, the church did this to my kids. But what's interesting is those parents actually were the ones that also taught their kids that. Some people say, well, it's because of the youth programs. We should get rid of youth programs. Youth programs are the reason why people are walking away from the church. Some people say, well, we don't have enough youth programs. We need more youth programs. Some people say, we need apologetics to teach apologetics to our kids. And some of those are, in those are some good ideas, not necessarily bad ideas. We should teach apologetics to our kids. But as you think through the, the biblical examples of prodigal children, you know the, the one theme that runs through all of it? through all of those examples, is those children held on into their adulthood, held on to pride. Cain, he knew the truth. God spoke directly to Cain. He brought in, in pride, he brought an unacceptable offering. God confronted him. God warned him. God warned him that sin is found in the self and it wants to dominate you, but he rejected God's word. He went out and he killed his brother. In pride, he didn't humble himself before God. Hophni and Phinehas practically lived in the tabernacle like the knowledge of God was all around them. Their problem was not a lack of knowledge. Their problem was pride. Sometimes people say, well, Eli, he didn't discipline them well. The Bible says he didn't discipline them well. Can I just tell you, that's a symptom of the problem. That's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. Because Eli's problem was that he was not humble before God. I mean, he was fat, right? 
I mean, he died because he was fat. Remember, he fell over and broke his neck. What are you, why are you fat in that society? Well, he was stealing from the people. He was not humble before God, and he did not teach his boys humility. Even the prodigal son, think about them. He wanted to live life for himself. He didn't want his father to tell him what to do. He wanted to go out and party, so he demanded, give me my share, father. Give me my share that's coming to me. And it was only when he was left with nothing, he was in a pigsty, that he lifted his eyes up to God in humility and said, I have sinned against heaven before you. And he told his father, Father, I am no longer worthy. So look at verse 23. Why do children and Christian parents walk away from the faith? Because they have not humbled their heart, though they knew the truth. Verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, the sovereign God who allows you to exist, who's, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. The chapter concludes with Daniel giving the interpretation, which basically meant your days are up, judgment's coming. And you can see at the very end in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. God allowed the Persians to come in, conquer the city, and he faced the judgment of death. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you about Adonai, who grew up in a Christian home. He walked away from the Lord. Why did Adonai walk away from the Lord? It was pride. It was, he had a heart that did not want to humble himself under the Lord. What's interesting, he had a mother that prayed for him every day. He had a father that prayed for him as well. The story didn't end there. Adoniram, he went to New York City to become a playwright. He was not successful. He felt dirty after leaving that city because of his sin. He felt disgusted by his time there. New York City was not as nice as it is today, and it's not even really nice today. He rode his horse as far as he could. It was late at night, went to an inn, and the inn had no room except for one room that he had to share with a person who was dying. So they put up a sheet in the room, and the man the, was on one side, and he was groaning all night long, and Adam Iron was on the other side, and he was trying to sleep, but he couldn't sleep because all he could hear was this guy groaning all the time. And he realized this man, he knew this man was dying, and so then these thoughts of death began to plague his mind. And he couldn't sleep the whole night until like 4 or 5 in the morning. So then he slept in, and by the time he got up, pretty much everyone in the inn was gone. And he went out there to eat breakfast and sat down and got some porridge. And the innkeeper was there. And, and he asked the innkeeper, he said, hey, who, who was that guy in the room last night? And Adoniram was asking the innkeeper this. And the innkeeper said, oh, well, um, that man was uh, from Brown University. He died last night. And Jacob, and he said, um, Adonai said, well, who was that man? He says his name was Eames, Jacob Eames. And Adonai realized that was his friend. And he had questions throughout the night, like, where is this guy going to go? You know, what's, 
what's on the other side for him. And then he'd always come back and go, you know what, if my friend Jacob knew these thoughts, he would laugh at me. And the next morning he found out that that was his friend Jacob. And his friend Jacob was dead. He didn't believe in Christ. And he was in hell. And through that event, God humbled Adoniram. As he rode on his horse, he turned back to home. And as he rode on his horse, he, he heard in his head as the, as the horse clopped along, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And he thought to himself, what will happen when I'm dead? And through that, he turned to faith in Christ. And he became America's first foreign missionary to Burma. And his name is Adoniram Judson. What's interesting to see is how God got a hold of his heart. And so let me just conclude with some thoughts for us to consider. James 4, 6 says, He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So first of all, let me just speak to parents of children in the home. If you're a parent in here and you have children in the home, I want you just to think about some things with me. If pride is the reason why children walk away, what do you think is the most important character quality for you as a parent? Humility? I mean, if the greatest need in our home is grace, and grace comes through humility, then what kind of spirit should we have as parents? And I guess really the question is, are we as parents living lives of humility? I mean, what kind of message does it send to our children when we in pride complain, right? We complain about our bosses. We complain about our church. We complain about our pastor. We complain about our elders, our school teachers, right? And in pride, we, we direct this to kids, and then we hope they'll respond in humility. I mean, do we live a life of humility? You know, husbands, when you sin against your wife or wife, when you sin against your husband, and you do it in front of the children, do you sit down with the children and tell them, Daddy was wrong in what I did. Like, I sinned against God. I sinned against your mom. Do you seek reconciliation? When you speak harshly to your kids, when you're unreasonable with your children, do you ask them to forgive you for that? Or you say, well, they were wrong. You, they sinned, so I don't, you know. No, you were also wrong. Are you humble with your kids? When's the last time you sat down with your child and you asked them to forgive you for something you did? I think another thing to think about with parents in the home, since the humility is the path of blessing, the goal of our discipline, the goal of our discipline should be to help our children enjoy humility before God. Not humiliation, right? There's a difference between humility before God and humiliation. If you're humiliating your child, you're parenting in pride, right? We, we actually should parent our, or discipline our children in humility for the purpose of encouraging humility. We can sometimes respond to our children in anger. As James says, it's the wrath of man. It does not produce the righteousness of God. Sometimes we discipline our kids or we parent in a way that we just want peace. I hear this from parents all the time. It's like, I just want some peace in the home, right? And so therefore we parent to say, basically, get off my back. Let me have some peace. So your parenting is actually about who? It's about you. You're parenting in pride for the hope of what? 
Humility. So if you discipline your children with a philosophy of pride, what do you think the outcome is going to be for your children? I believe there's three stages of parenting. There's the command stage. This is the younger age where we give clear commands and instruct our kids. And what are we instructing them in? To have humility before God. And then and there's another stage when in the preteen and teenage years where we're, 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 we're coaching them. And what are we coaching them in? Well, we're demonstrating humility by apologizing to our kids, right? We're just demonstrating it. We disciple them in humility. We encourage them. And then when they are humble, we cheer them on, right? That's what coaching does. And then the last stage is the adult stage where we counsel with humility and encourage humility. And then I'd last say to parents of adult children, the response of humility for your children is their responsibility. The response of humility for your children is their responsibility. You can't force humility. You can't manipulate humility. It has to be a work that God does in them. God needs to humble them. So what is your responsibility? You can pray for them. You can definitely keep giving them Christ. But most importantly, we need to pray, right? If God is the only one who can truly give grace... He's the one who humbles, but we need to pray that God will do that. And then last, I just want to speak to the youth in here. If you're under the age of 18, or maybe let's go up to 22, I don't know. Is it possible that you might walk away from the Lord? Is it possible in five years from now that you'll have nothing to do with Christianity? And if that happens, why is that? I hear a lot of reasons from people that are young adults as to why they walked away. Usually it's about the church or their parents or something else like that. But what does the Bible teach? The reason you'll walk away is because you will not humble your heart before God, even though you know the truth. And yes, it's true. People can sin against you. Yes, it's true. There are hypocrites in the church. Yes, it's true that there's things your parents can do to you that maybe weren't the best things that happen. But in the end of the day, the reason you walk away from Jesus is because you choose to do that. You choose to humble yourself before God. And so we must accept that responsibility. Each one of us must live with a broken and contrite heart before God. We must turn from this faith and trust in ourselves, and confess we're helpless. We wholly need to surrender to Jesus Christ. And so if you're a young person here, I guess my question in here is, are you living a humble life? Are you living this life right here in humility before Christ? Let's pray together.